Welcome back to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. I'm your host, Woodrow Bellamy III. Today is Friday, August 14th, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing some of the latest updates on the U.S. airline industry's efforts to survive the COVID-19 pandemic with the Aviation Agency. But first, I want to let everyone know that we have just announced our next installment of the Global Connected Aircraft Cabin Chats virtual event that is coming up next month. September 22nd through the 24th. We are currently working on speakers and have just published the agenda for that, which you can check out at www.gcasummit.com. I recently had the chance to catch up with Brian Del Monte. He is an economist and business strategist and president of the Aviation Agency to discuss some of the ways in which U.S. airlines are trying to reduce costs, and effectively use the recent bailout funds that they were issued by the U.S. government, along with a discussion of an upcoming proposed bailout package and what that could mean for the near future of the airline industry. Brian also provides some insight on what he thinks the U.S. airline industry could look like within the next two to three years under the changes that have been brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's get into our discussion with Brian. Can you first start out by giving those in our audience that may be unfamiliar with yourself in the aviation industry just a little bit of background on your role with the organization and uh, just your overall career in aviation? Sure. I'll tell you a little bit of of my story, and then I'll tell you uh, the story of our advertising agency, the aviation agency. So I've been working in communications for over 30 years now. I'm going to be 50 in September. Um, I have been a trial consultant. I have worked for the U.S. government as a government official. I've worked in the intelligence community. And for the last 15 or so years, I've been working in advertising. And so I've spent the majority of my career trading words and ideas for action and profit. That, that would be how I would summarize everything that I've done. Um, I've been a presidential speechwriter. I've done campaign work. I've done uh, intelligence work. I've done campaigns big and small. And uh, four years ago, when I was when I was a kid, okay, Top Gun came out in the '80s, and I was like, "Ooh, that looks really sexy, right? Let me go. That that could be a career for me." So I go, you know, because that was back in the day, that's how you became an airline pilot, right? You either flew in Vietnam or you flew for the Navy or the Air Force, and then pal, you got hired by the airlines, right? The whole way. So I was like, I want to go, you know, that looks pretty cool. And uh, I go to the Navy recruiter and the guy goes, well, Brian, you're five, five and your right side sucks. So thanks for your interest in national security. This is before, you know, radial cartotomy, uh, eye, you know, laser eye surgery. Now, this is a fact I brought up with the chief of naval operations when I worked at the Pentagon saying, you know, you could have had me 20 years ago and you guys blew it. Um, But uh, in any event, I put the dream of being a pilot on the shelf. Okay. So four four or five years ago, my my wife is like, hey, you know, there's this thing called a discovery flight. It's a couple hundred bucks. You can go fly. You know, I'd flown simulators and, you know, I I never really gave up the passion, but I, I wasn't focused on it. So I go and I take a, a discovery flight and I'm, you know, other than realizing there's a, a big difference between a simulator and a cockpit, I was like, wow, okay, this is really for me. 
And so I start hanging out at FBOs and start becoming more steeped in it. And I had done work for big aerospace because of my, my time in the Pentagon and the Intel community. I had all the nice tickets they wanted. So I had done work for companies like Honeywell and GE and, you know, General Atomics and the like. And I, you know, that's a completely different world. Selling aerospace, you know, for your listeners, obviously that world has its own unique peculiarities from aviation as a broad rubric, right? So I start hanging out essentially in business and general aviation. And I'm like, wow, you know what? There's a lot of craft and money wrapped up in all this. Why is it all marketed so poorly? And so I spent two years trying to answer that question. Um, I didn't want to, you know, I, I was running an agency at the time. I had done aerospace work at the time. Um, I was consulting with very large agencies about social media and whatnot. And I was like, you know, this is interesting. Let me start drilling down on this problem. And in two years, what I found was um, it's, a, it's a very tight-knit community that is suspicious of outsiders, in part because you got to come up to speed and you got to know the lingo, right? You got to understand the world that they're in. Um, and not to be, not to give my spiel, uh, uh, but not to, and not to be dismissive of my competitors. Some of them do good executional work, but they all tell a story that goes like this. I was a pilot once, or I ran, uh, you know, an airport once, and I did a brochure, and I decided that was way easier than what I was doing. And so I'm doing this now. And I was like, okay, there really aren't any real good competitors in this space, competent competitors. Um, and I was trying to understand why none of my peers that had handled major brands were really playing in this space other than at the airline level and really then only for TV, um, you know, for commercials. And I'm like, okay, I think the issue is, is one, the industry is hard to understand. And two, you got to have a passion for it. Well, I had a passion for it. So we said in two years ago, we said, okay, let's see if we can combine our craft, which all of my people, you know, this is what we've done for our careers. We've sold hotel rooms and grills and cruise boats and liquor and beer and all this other stuff. And I'm like, you know, we really don't care if we sell more soap. It's great. Soap's great. People need soap. But we don't get excited about soap. We don't get excited about hotel rooms. We don't get excited about a lot of the things we were helping sell. Not that they're not necessary, totally necessary. I'm like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could actually care about the clients selling their products and services? So two years ago, we opened the aviation agency, and we've been going like gangbusters ever since. Um, it's great in that combining our craft, which is sales and marketing, with our passion for the subject has really worked out. And so we focus exclusively on aviation and aerospace companies, and we're a full-service agency. We can do everything from simple ads to Super Bowl commercials and have legitimate chops from beginning to end on all of it. I see. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, yeah, and you know, so um, one of the things we really wanted to, to get your kind of expert opinion and perspective on is the bailout packages that uh, have been proposed for airlines. Now, as you know, as, as most most of our listeners know, 
uh, back in April, there was a $50 billion bailout package that was distributed specifically to the airline industry, um, you know, to kind of help survive through this unprecedented, uncertain period where uh, you just don't know when you're going to get back to, you know, full pre-COVID passenger demand. Uh, and we know that there is a new proposed $25 billion bailout package for the U.S. airline industry as well. Um, can you first start out by giving us some perspective on how that bailout package back in April actually played out? Sure. Um, and let me begin prefacing my remarks. Um, I am an economist by training, and I've handled more than my share of sticky political issues um, from my time in the Bush administration. So I get the challenge that that was happening here. And I would characterize what happened in, in March and April as everything's exploding. Let's hit the snooze button on some of these issues. Okay. And the airline industry was one of the snooze buttons. I think they decided to hit with the $50 billion package. Um, you know, the package was split between effectively irrevocable lines of credit without determining creditworthiness, right? That was 25 billion of the package. And the other 25 billion was grants. And that's what everybody kind of focuses on because, you know, the money came with the strings of no one can get fired between now and October. Well, you know, what's happened in that time? Well, we all can look on the internet, right? Various airlines, October 1st, there are going to be more axes fallen than a woodchopper's convention. Okay. There's been voluntary um, retirements. How voluntary? Who knows? Okay. I suspect not as voluntary as the airlines would like us to believe. Capacity is down, what, 85%, sometimes more in some, in some uh, airline channels. And the airlines went from making what they made, made a week to making that now a quarter collectively, right? Sometime when I looked at it in, in April, May. So I personally, right, me, Brian, looks at it and goes, okay, I don't think giving them any money really solves anything. But the political uh overload of Congress in that moment, I'm like, okay, I can understand giving $50 billion for time. And maybe the problem solves itself, right? Because one of the challenges that I think is happening for the administration, and this is a paradigmatic um, outlook that I think business leaders and the administration have, is like, this is a thunderstorm. It's going to pass. There's going to be this exogenous shock that happens, and then the sun will come out shining and things will take off, right? I mean, remember back in April, you had Jared saying, you know, we're going to be really rocketed in July. Well, here we are in August. How'd that pan out? Okay, and I'm not, I'm not saying these things to pass judgment politically, because I've had to deal with this type of, of crisis. I'm just saying, look, guys, our best laid plans didn't, didn't pan out. So this notion of temporary fixes as a paradigm is probably wrong. Even if we got a vaccine tomorrow, it would take a while to roll it out, and it would take a while to take hold. And what do I mean by a while? Two years. <laughs> so, so this notion of, well, they just need a Band-Aid to get through the hard times, 
wow, I wish that were true. Hashtag change my mind. I don't see it. Okay. I just don't see that that's a useful lens to look at this problem. And clearly the airlines don't appear to be looking at it that way because of the strategic moves they're taking in terms of their labor force and in terms of what they're desperately trying to do in the, in the uh, bond markets, raising capital. Right. So if we're, you know, how, how did the first package work? Well, it solved the political problem, which is no one exploded right at that moment. But it didn't solve the underlying business problem for the airlines, which is your business model is fundamentally at odds with the containment of a pandemic. And the longer problem of we now have a uh, economic contraction that will hurt demand for at least the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah, it is a very interesting perspective, you know, and, and you know, it's glad we're able to catch up with you as kind of the, you know, expert economist opinion. Uh, but kind of a follow up question on that. I mean, if you are an airline and, and even looking at this from April or even right now today, like you said, if you're if you're an executive at one of these major carriers, I mean, how do you just look at surviving this thing without, uh, you know, obviously massive layoffs, furloughs? That type of thing. Uh, I think I think it was Delta that removed about 700 aircraft total from its fleet so far, and has more right. fleet ret retirements coming up. You know, obviously they're still flying, but it's 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 just difficult to to fathom. Like, you know, how do you keep surviving until, like you said, over the next 18 to 24 months, hopefully you get back to these pre-COVID 19 levels of passenger demand? Well. You know, look, if I were Ed Bastian, I'd be doing what he's doing, okay? If I were Munoz, I'd be doing what he's doing, which is everything you possibly can. Get money from every sector you can and beg, borrow, and scream to holy high heaven for bailouts, okay? They're doing the right things. The, the, um, they have to – see, here's – okay. Let's back up one second, and I'm going to make an observation – Two observations. The first observation is this. COVID has caused every institution and all of our cultural arrangements to be put under so much stress that every minor fault is now cracking and causing problems. Okay, so this is, this is a systemic event that is the most serious event as a political scientist. From my perspective, this is the most severe event to hit the world since the Second World War. And there will be long-term consequences institutionally and culturally and in our international relationships as a consequence of this event. So just like World War II gave us Bretton Woods and the UN and NATO and you know all these, these international uh, institutions which now are struggling, um, we're going to have a new series of relationships post-COVID. Okay, so so there's this huge systemic crush on all these companies, and the airlines are particularly affected because again their um, their model is antithetical to the containment of a pandemic. Moving large numbers of people great distances in confined spaces is not consistent with containing a pandemic. 
And I know that's the big white elephant nobody wants to talk about in the room, but that's the reality. Okay. So um, it's a challenge for the airlines to just deal with that fundamental business model fact. Okay. Now put that aside because even without COVID, there was a fundamental problem with the airline industry as a whole. And that problem may be most acute in the United States as the biggest market, which is in the 1990s, your average flight ticket was like $560 a seat, okay? And today, everyone is in uproar paying more than like $400 to fly coach. Well, that's a 30-year time span and money didn't appreciate during that time. So the real cost of airline tickets in real terms, has been dropping for the last 30 years. Well, if you remember Econ 101, supply and demand, why would that be the case? Well, supply has been much larger than demand for quite some time. It's the only way you get that dynamic. Interesting. Yeah, and you know, that, that just to kind of follow on what you mentioned about the in-flight experience and the, and the overall business models being used by airlines, um, how do you think that will change through this pandemic? I mean, you know, what what do you think? Obviously, it would be great to not have to sit so close to somebody within a within a uh, you know cabin uh, economy class seat. Um, that would be a great change. But just you know, the the overall the way that they operate aircraft, uh, the way that they you know predict demand schedules, that type of thing. How, how do you think that will overall change, you know, a, as we move through the pandemic? And do you see a lot more, uh, you know, airlines just going out of business, retiring more aircraft, maybe even some airport, airports are removed from the industry as well? You know, we'll have to, you know, I wish I were Karnak. I'm not. Um, but let me give you, let me give you this, okay? I think Michael O'Leary, you know, who's the CEO of Ryanair, pointed to the white elephant in the room, which is no airline can make money on 66% load capacities. So the middle seat can't be open forever. Okay. Um, and that's true, right? I mean, most airlines can't operate profitably if they don't have load factors of at least 80%. Um, so, so in other interviews where I've talked about this, I said, look, if you really want them to keep that middle seat open for a public health reason, then probably governments need to pay for it. And some governments have chosen to, and, and ours hasn't, right? We, we, we've been leaving it up to, to the airlines and they've been doing it because they feel political pressure, but at some point, you know, the investors, you know, deciding that they're going to burn the place down is going to be a louder chant than their concerns of blowback from Instagram and politicians on this issue. Okay. Because the business, the business case can't be, can't be, you know, wished away. They can't make money selling only two thirds of the business. Um, and even if they sell the plane, as I pointed out, they still can't make money. What they have to do is sell enough seats that they can get enough ancillary revenue that then they make money, right? And that means they can't leave the middle seat open. Um, how will they solve it? Well, I think they will try to streamline overhead. That means fewer planes. So I think the capacity reductions are not temporary. I think there's considerable evidence to show that it's not temporary, given the announcements you've heard, right? BA accelerated putting all the 747-400s on the shelf. Um, Delta, right, didn't they shelve all their 777s? 
Um, yeah, you know, so so the airlines are like, okay, look, we can't maintain 30 different aircraft. It's just too hard from a supply chain, you know, model. Um, what you may see is specialization in the marketplace um, that that reflects everybody's ability to do certain things well. The major airlines, right, the big 121 carriers really do long haul well. They don't do the, you know, Minneapolis to Miami route as well, right, which is why you had a Compass or a SkyWest or some regional airlines doing that on behalf of the of the major carrier, right? They were co-branded, you know, fair sharing. Well, maybe they get out of that entirely and they're like, look, we're just not going to do that market. We're going back to hub and spoke and we're going to focus primarily on medium and long haul. If they went that way, that wouldn't shock me. Okay. Um, you may then see regional airports, right? And regional carriers are real. They were under strain before all this went down and then COVID happens and they completely explode, right? Compass is gone. Um, you've got all these regional airlines that are teetering on on being gone. Um, and, you know, if you're American, United or Delta, you look at these guys and go, we can't even keep our own planes full, let alone yours. So, you know, I was going to fly to Miami in um, June. Now, normally I, f- I fly to Miami pretty often. Normally there's an MSP to MIA flight and I get on, you know, Compass or SkyWest or whatever. And it's a, you know, it's, it's like a hundred seat aircraft, right? You know, um, and you go direct. Well, that's gone. Now, uh, the, the, the best I could do was me MSP to ATL, ATL to MIA. And they were huge aircraft in both cases. And I have no doubt in both cases what they were was repositioning for international travel. Okay. So that tells me that if they can hardly keep those planes full, then the regionals must really be in trouble because it can't be cost effective to fly those planes around but for repositioning. Okay. So I'm like subsidizing those repositioning flights. I'm not, you know, that would not be how they would normally want to operate. So... So, okay, so maybe the big airlines, they only fly overseas and they only fly cross country and a market develops of regionals that actually do a lot of this point to point stuff. Okay, that could happen. You know, airports, I don't think will go under because I think the FAA and I think, quite frankly, members of Congress, it's a big deal to have a regional airport go under. And I don't think they're going to put up with it. Not to mention those regional airports do more than just push passengers. Okay, there's there's more going in and out of your regional airport than just the people who who you know get off on some hopper. Uh, but it's a it's a mess across the board. And one of the things I think the, the reason why you know I'm making these arguments why doesn't Congress see it this way? There's not a single member of Congress that isn't somehow touched by aviation. They have an airport in their district. They have an airline in their district. They have an aerospace manufacturer in their district. And the concern is if the 121 service all implodes and there's this huge upset at the bankruptcy court, what's that look like politically for me? Okay. Um, And so, like I said, you know, when they passed the bailout the first time, it was largely political salve, not economic salve. 
And right now, the reason why it's growing is they're like, okay, it's pretty clear we still have to hit the snooze button on this on this problem. Um, but there needs to be some sort of long-term adjustment, and that adjustment probably has to come through bankruptcy restructuring. You know, prior to 2010, it, airlines used to be in bankruptcy all the time. I mean, it was a joke when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s. It seemed like Eastern Airlines was perpetually in bankruptcy. TWA was like perpetually in bankruptcy. Continental seemed like it was in bankruptcy forever back in the day, right? And and one of the things that strikes me interesting now is they equate bankruptcy with like gone. And I'm like, you know what? If these airlines go bankrupt, but Guardia is still going to be standing there as an airport. Kennedy's still going to be standing there. LAX is still going to be standing there. These planes are still going to be parked. These are real assets. Yeah, there needs to be a real hardcore discussion between the debtors and the creditors on all this. But these are real assets. This infrastructure is not going to just disappear. The question is, is what do we do for the next three years with an infrastructure that doesn't serve likely what we need in terms of demand? And the way we deal with it in our country is we allow essentially individual negotiations to create a macro solution. We have to let them go bankrupt. Even if we gave them money this time around, even if we said to the airlines, okay, look, here's another 50 billion. How does that help Delta Airlines meet its debt covenants about how much it's flying and how much you know, revenue it's generating or United or American or Southwest, or any other of these airlines. Because just because the you know politicians get up and say, COVID's over, go out and do stuff, it's not happening. You can't you can't force people to suddenly decide, you know, war's over, you know, go out and everything's good. So even if we give them these this money, how does it solve their fundamental problem that demand is going to be suppressed by as much as 80% for the next two years? I don't know how it solves that problem. <laughs> so we have to we have to have an unwinding of some of this. I hate to say it, but you know, and I wish in po- one of the things I learned from the year the time I was in politics, everyone thinks it's like hot fudge Sunday versus crap sandwich. God, I wish. Okay, every item on the menu is crap sandwich. The question is, how much do you want to eat? And so there were no good choices on any of these issues. <laughs> okay. I wish, I wish there were. I wish we could say, here's $50 billion. Good luck. Everything will be fine. I wish I could say that. But it's not a fairy tale world up in Congress, and it's not a fairy tale for these guys. They have to shrink for a long period of time capacity. And that is going to have an impact on the economy. Because there won't be 30 flights a day to X in first class anymore. Okay, they just it won't be that way anymore. That's going to have a direct impact on the economy. It's going to have a direct impact on their investors. It's going to have a direct impact on their operations. It's going to have a direct impact on every airport in the United States. You know, but hashtag change my mind. How do you, how do you solve this problem when, when we're not going to have anybody fly? And, you know, I want to follow up on one point you did mention earlier, which is, you know, about the aerospace manufacturers and suppliers who uh, are also, you know, on the commercial side are also heavily impacted by this drop in passenger demand and drop in overall 
uh, operations and just the you know financial health of the airline industry overall directly impacts them even you know going all the way up to uh, you know Boeing Airbus even Rolls-Royce one of the biggest engine manufacturers just announced they're gonna have to lay off about 5400 right. people how do they right. I mean are they obviously if, if I were you know a supplier I'd just be rooting for airlines to come back but how do they also survive this uncertain period well okay so let's um let's let's take a look at um aerospace which is what you're talking about when you talk about boeing and airbus and you know safran and rolls and and all these guys okay um yes commercial service is a big market for them Boeing probably won't go bankrupt because Boeing's major revenues come from aerospace and defense and the Pentagon hasn't stopped buying. They just got a big, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, for the Navy and I want to, and this might be wrong, but I thought it was a $400 billion contract over the next 10 years. Okay. So the, the A&D work will keep some of that aerospace industry in the money, all right? Um, who's going to be most impacted by the long-term depression for, for the airlines? It's your MRO guys. It's your airports. It's all the, you know, 145 part, um, you know, uh, uh, repair stations that work for the, the airlines for those MROs. They're the ones that are going to feel this pain acutely in the reduction in, in air travel. Um, you know, but Boeing and Airbus and, and you know, the major jet uh, engine makers, again, not that, you know, they'll be popping champagne corks, you know, in the investor meetings. They won't be because they'll lose huge chunks of these markets that used to be, um, you know, really great for their balance sheet but they're not is in quite a desperate situation as the commercial carriers. Um, although with Boeing, you know, Boeing's got a whole bunch of problems simultaneously, right? They have the collapse of the air industry. They have the 737 max and they have the fact they haven't sold a single plane since February. It's a big problem. <laughs> okay. Same with Airbus. I don't think Airbus has sold a plane since March. Okay. It's a huge problem. Um, you know, now if I were repair stations, if I were MROs, right, I would be looking to help business aviation. I would be looking to see what else we can do in terms of, I mean, these are all firms that are brilliant at engineering. Well, there are other engineering problems to be solved than just the commercial aviation problems. And so this is why you see like Honeywell is, is manufacturing ventilators, right? So Honeywell airspace is manufacturing ventilators part, um, you know, but these guys are also coupled together so closely. It's really hard to decouple them. I mean, if GE slows down in the amount of engines it's selling, that has a big ripple throughout the industry. If Safran slows down what it's selling, if, if Rolls-Royce sl slows down what it's selling, it's more than just Rolls-Royce. It's more than just Safran. It's more than just GE. Okay. This is why I said, look, COVID is causing a systemic crush on everyone. 
you know, um, and with my clients, you know, I'm like, look, there are winners and losers in every economic upheaval. There were winners in the Great Depression. Amazon was started during the 90s recession. Okay, it's not impossible to recover, but you have to be flexible and you have to decide, am I going to be a winner or a loser? And if I'm going to be a winner, well, then you have to change your business model potentially, and you have to decide we're in the business of being in business and figure out what you can do that has value in the new structure. All very good points. And I think we definitely learned a lot today uh, from yourself. I want to say before we do let you go, I just have to get some perspective from you, you know, as just the remainder of the year and, you know, kind of even over the next few months or so, what are some of the factors that you'll be paying attention to on the commercial side of, of the, you know, aviation industry? What are, you know, what are some signs of, you know, getting back to some sense of normalcy that, that you'll be looking for or, or like we discussed, you know, just establishing some financial health and finding new opportunities to to make revenue for airlines what are some of the factors that you'll be paying attention to well i would look at i mean let me just preface my remarks saying you know uh, they're the tail wagging the dog on this on this big broader issue so what i'd be looking for first would be what's going on in the containment of the pandemic are we finally, you know, we're the largest market, we're the biggest problem on coronavirus. Are we getting a handle on it? When cases come down, when testing improves, and we can actually do something with that data, when we can start negotiating with our international, you know, allies to actually allow people into their country, right? All that has to happen before the airlines start, start improving their revenues. So, so even if they were the best ever at it, they can't land in certain countries and people can't get off. And if you can't get off, well, what's the point of getting on the plane, right? So we need to get the pandemic under control first. So the things I'm really paying attention to is how well are we doing that? And then when, when we start seeing reduction in cases and a reduction in the spread and you know things are calming down, well, then how quickly are people returning to the skies? And so I pay attention to really, I have a, I have a client, um, uh, uh, AirNav Systems, that actually tracks the number of, of flights through ADSB data daily. So we look at the aggregate numbers, but I also look at the TSA screening numbers and I get a sense of, well, where's the trend going? Because just the, even if we had a vaccine tomorrow, it doesn't mean everybody's going to jump on a plane because we're also in the middle of an economic catastrophe right? With 30 plus million people out of work. So I think right now we're seeing some life because people basically have like had it. And so there's a certain amount of, of summer travel, but I would be looking for a sustained rates overall in terms of increasing travel once the pandemic seems to be brought under control. And then the second thing I'm going to pay close attention to is business travel. Because when you look at chartered service, when you look at BizAv service, they're actually back to normal, pretty close to it. And in some cases under supply strain, that there aren't enough jets for all the people that want to, to travel. So if the biz travelers start returning to the scheduled service carriers, that would be a good sign too, right? Um, 
the other thing I would look for is if the airlines stop cutting because you can't cut your way to growth. Okay. I've, I've never seen that strategy where you fire people and the company grows, right? You're firing all these people and you're reducing overhead because you're trying to get your expenses to drop faster than your revenues. So when they stop that process, to me, that will be the long-term marker of they feel confident enough in the long-term picture that things will start growing again. And the final thing I'd look for is if Airbus or Boeing ever sell a plane again, that would also be a turning point for me. That is for sure. Well, he is the president of the aviation industry. I wanted to say, Brian, thanks for joining me on the Global Connected Aircraft podcast today. Thanks for having me. And yes, the Aviation Agency, feel free to reach out. So that brings us to the end of this episode. As always, please subscribe to us on Apple's podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Woodrow Bellamy III. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. Podcast.